As you're being seated, if you would now turn with me into your Bibles to Philippians chapter 4, verse 13. Find that if you're flipping through the Pew Bible, that's page 1167. Page 1167. We are continuing our series of, ooh, so close, as we are taking a look at commonly misunderstood and misapplied verses of the Bible. And we have come now to probably the athletic community's favorite verse, Philippians 4.13. And it reads as follows. Listen carefully, because this is the word of the Lord. It says, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God for his word. Let us go to our God and ask his blessing for our time together. Lord, we do thank you that you have brought us here to this passage with an enormous truth and promise to us. Pray that you would help us to understand it well. And we ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you like a promise from God that you would be able to do anything that you have set your mind to? Whether that is to have the strength to parent, fix that leaky faucet, win a championship football game, or even preach a sermon. Be wonderful to have a passage that will tell us that the Lord is going to be with us and will give us the strength to accomplish that. This would be wonderful because this also gives us the opportunity to say, you know what, I did this thing and I get to give God all the credit for it. Yes, I fixed that faucet, but it was only because of the strength that the Lord has provided or I was able to win this championship basketball game because the Lord has indeed given me strength. Thankfully, no one on the other team prayed for that. Now, what we can find in the verses that we've looked at so far is the popular interpretation is close, which is why I named it the way that I did. When we look at this verse, it is in fact true that the Lord is the one who gives us the strength to do whatever it is that we're going to do. I am not the one who is keeping my heart beating at the moment. I'm not the one that is keeping my cellular structure together lest I fly apart at any moment. It is the Lord who is giving me all the things that I need in order to be able to do what I'm doing and you to be doing what you're doing. It is, in fact, true of that. And this is something that David recognized in Psalm 139 when he talks about that it is the Lord is the one who knit him together. He is the one who is behind and before and knows when he's sitting up and his rising uh, his, his sitting down and his rising up and another psalm in psalm 104 14 we find that this strengthening indeed goes all the way down to the individual blades of grass psalm 104 14 says that the lord causes the grass to grow indeed the lord's strength is what makes all of life not just our own possible in the earth So it is true that the Lord is the one who helps us to catch that touchdown pass, train up good children, or indeed preach a sermon. But that's not typically how we use this verse. The way that we tend to use this verse is the Lord is the one who strengthens us to accomplish the things we want to, not fail at them. Indeed, the Lord is the one who gives you the strength to drain that final basketball at the end of your championship game. But it is also the Lord that will allow you to miss 
that final shot as well. He is the one who will oversee even your failure to fix the leaky faucet or your failure to preach a good sermon. The Lord is just as sovereign over your failures as he is your victories. But we don't tend to use this verse like that, do we? The Lord has strengthened me to fail. We don't like that, particularly as Americans. We don't like failure. But it turns out the promise that he is giving to you in this verse is better than victory. But that indeed he will teach you how to be satisfied whether you win the game or not. And the danger of interpreting this verse is just the opportunity that the Lord gives you strength to win, as one pastor points out. If we look at that verse that way, we become in danger of being disillusioned with God when we lose. It's like, oh, well, God promised to give me strength, but I didn't have it. So therefore, he must not be a good God. That's why we need to interpret this verse as it was meant to be understood. And that is what we are going to look at today. When we read this in context, just going back just a few verses to verse 10, let's see what Paul's talking about. He's speaking to the Philippians, by the way, from jail as he's writing this. He says, I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. Not that I'm speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. What this verse is then talking about is not winning the championship football game, but is in fact the strength to be content whether you win or lose. And that is what we are going to be discovering today. True contentment, I think, from the world's perspective, particularly our own country, is probably the weirdest of all Christian virtues. For us to be content, whether we have a lot or have a little, probably looks like to the rest of the world that we're just in denial. It's like, like, well, you're not really happy that you lost your house. You're just in denial. You're whistling in the dark. You're not really satisfied whether you have a little or a lot. That's what our world is trying to tell us all the time. More is more. Newer is better. Undeniably. And the only way to be happy is to keep on that pace. This is something that occurs in every industry, from fast fashion to tech. Apple is probably the best at this, in what they call their reality distortion field. How you can, they can convince you that you need this $1,000 device you've never even heard of before that now you can't live without. Milwaukee does this to us too. We have all these wonderful power tools, but we need another one despite the fact the pyramids were built without them. (laughs) We can do this with any hobby. We can do this with good things, too. I'll be satisfied when I'm married. I'll be content when I have children. I'll finally be at rest when my bank account hits here. Learning the secret to contentment is a superpower in this world. When you can look to the rest of the universe and say, I don't need that to be happy, you become untouchable. 
when you can say no to the superfluous. That's what we're going to be looking at today. In our two points to help us stay out of the trap of discontentment, or at least be able to get out of it when we fall into it, the first point is to understand that everything that we have is a gift from God. Everything. We underline that. The second point that we have is that contentment is possible. Contentment actually is possible because Paul tells us that it is under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. So let's jump in and let's take a look at how we have everything is a gift from God. Again, as I mentioned earlier, Paul is writing this letter to the Philippian church from prison, which is quite an achievement. One writer had noticed that the words joy and rejoice are used no less than 16 times in this book's four chapters. That's a lot of focus on joy and rejoicing in a place that's not known for joy and rejoicing. I don't know about you, but I have a hard time thinking about joy and rejoicing when I have my freedom limited. I've never been in prison before, but I understand what it is like to be limited in something. And that often doesn't spring up joy. But here, Paul seems to have something else. He seems to have this thing called contentment. And this is what he's getting at here. He says that I have learned in every state to be content. Now, the cynical part of us might say it's like, well, Paul's lived a pretty rugged life. He has learned how to do without. He's just used to it. It's like these Navy SEALs that only live on four hours of sleep and are wet and sandy all the time, and they say that they love it. They've just gotten used to it. They're not really content. They've just become hardened to it. That's not Paul. Paul tells us that he has abounded before. He knows what it's like to be wealthy. When he lays out in other passages that I have been the Pharisee of Pharisees, a well-respected lawyer in the community probably had access to quite a bit more than he has now. As one commentator pointed out, Paul knows what it means to be rich, and he also knows what it means to be desperately poor, what it means to be full, and what it means to feel the stomach pains of hunger. Where does this come from? Listen very closely to this one. This is a quote from one scholar looking at the word contentment. He says it this way, such contentment springs from complete readiness to accept whatever God gives. The apostle makes no distinction between the necessary and the superfluous, but simply gives thanks for everything. He can accept both abundance and want as a part of his life, and he gives thanks that he has, hear this, received both as a gift together with God's gracious forgiveness and quickening power. Did you catch that? This contentment that he's getting at here is possible because God sees, because Paul sees his circumstances of being abounding and hungry and in prison both as gifts from God. I don't think that way usually. I've had to go through with small children. I've had the stomach bug a few times here lately. I don't see those times as gifts. It doesn't feel like a gift. But nonetheless, it is. That's hard for us to get a hold of. Almost sounds insensitive to even say. 
But that's the secret to contentment, is recognizing that God is, in fact, gracious to us and gives to us everything, including our hardships. We see this illustrated the best, as we've looked at it many times, of Job. Job was a successful man in every sense of the term. Wonderful family, booming business, lots of property, and a committed worshiper of God. And in a space of a day or two, loses everything, including his own health. The one thing that we point to and say, well, at least you have your health, Job didn't even have that. And what does he do? He worships God. Now, he was still in grief. Don't hear that. Jesus grieved. Grieving's not wrong. But, what, but look what Job does in the midst of his grief. Is he worships God. That is what contentment looks like. And he even tells his wife, uh, Job does, when she says, just curse God and die. And he says, well, how can I not receive both of these things? If I'm going to receive the good, how can I not also receive the bad? The key here is trusting in God. That's our key as we look into our second point, which says that contentment is possible. That's what he's getting at here in Philippians. Many sources that I read in preparation for this point to the passage in 2 Corinthians 12. You're all familiar with it. When Paul talks about his thorn in the flesh, Paul is in this moment talking about how The Lord has given him experiences that most people have not had. He gets caught up into the third heaven and sees glorious visions of heaven beyond what he's even able, in his amazing writing ability, cannot put into words. But in order to keep him from being prideful, the Lord gives him a thorn in the flesh, not described what it is. But whatever it is, Paul, who has been used to beatings and shipwrecks, hunger, All these things, this was enough for him to pray three separate times for the Lord to take it away. This is real suffering Paul is going through. And the answer that he gets from God is, my grace is sufficient for you. In other words, be content. That's what Paul is learning here. And in fact, later finds and says that God is glorified in Paul's weakness. That by Paul being weak... And unable, lacking, is able to show what God is capable of doing and provides for him. One scholar put it this way. This verse here, coming back to Philippians 4.13. This verse is about having the strength to be content when we are facing those moments in life when physical resources are minimal. This is about having every faith in God who provides the God who is sovereignly in control over every circumstance in life, the God who sees and knows our needs and has promised to meet them in Christ. That's the key, trusting in Jesus. Now, you might be thinking to yourself, all right, we got to Philippians 4.13. We were promised this big secret, and the big secret is trust in God. Okay, don't we all know that? How is this some untouchable secret that provides us the superpower of contentment? And all it is is trust in God. 
Well, if it's so easy, why don't we do it? Why don't we trust in God for what he's provided for us? I think there are many different answers for that. But I think the one reason, at least, is that the world continues to tempt us that the promise of real rest is just one more purchase away. And we are willing to trust in God like we would trust in a spare tire. It'll be there for us to get us to the thing that will really provide us comfort. The God of the gaps. Help us get through this time before we can really trust in this thing that we see. It's promised to us over and over again. But it's a smokescreen. When you think back in life of the things when you said, all right, at this point here, when I get this, then I'll be content forever. How long did that last? It didn't, did it? Nothing that we have ever looked forward to ever sustained us for the rest of our life. Our sinful hearts were always capable of wanting more. And looking for something else to trust so we don't have to trust God anymore. We only want to trust God as long as we can until we don't have to trust anymore. I don't have to trust that this floor is going to hold me up. I've seen this structure. I'm not worried about it. I'm not trusting anything. That's what we want. We want a life where we don't have to trust. We don't have to hang on to something. Or something doesn't have to hang on to us anymore. All those things that we look to for real security, it's a lie. We just had someone over in California win the billion-dollar Powerball lottery. And if history repeats itself, as it has with nearly every lottery winner, this man who will bring home after California taxes tens of thousands of dollars, now probably hundreds of millions, but... When he brings home his hundreds of millions of dollars, within just a few years, he will be worse off than he was before he won the lottery. It doesn't last. All of it just goes away. Yes, money can make some aspects of life easier, but it won't bring you contentment. Yes, marriage is wonderful, but it won't fill your heart. Kids are great, but they won't satisfy you forever. In fact, as I've thought about this, contentment is something that you can only have in the present. If you're going to say, I will be content over here when I have X, that's not contentment. It can only be said, I am content now because I have Christ. Anything else that you would fill in the blank over here, that's not contentment, that's worship. If you say, I'll be content when I have X dollars, you're worshiping those dollars. I'll be content when I have X spouse or a spouse that behaves like this. That's your object of worship. That's a hope. It's not contentment. Contentment is here. In all circumstances, it can be found because Christ is here in the present, in the now. Christ is not scared of your surgery. Christ is not scared of your cancer. He doesn't cower back even from the worst news possible. 
Christ is with you now. That's contentment. It's finding strength in him despite what your desires are. We have this idea that contentment is sitting up on top of a mountain with our legs crossed with no desires. It's not contentment. Biblically defined contentment is looking to Jesus and saying, I'm going to find my strength through you. Despite my circumstances, not because of them. Despite my desires, not because of them. So practically, how do you do that? How do you find strength from Christ? Well, when we find ourselves dreaming of a future in which blank difficulty is removed or blank achievement is found, we bring those things to Jesus and say, I'm giving them back here to you. Help me find the strength to not look to this for my hope, to not look to this for my strength. And what you'll find is he'll bring you contentment. Why? Because he's promised you to. When we come to Jesus saying, I am weak, I need this new iPhone, or think I need this new iPhone in order to feel complete, we come to Christ and say, one, forgive me of this false worship. And then two, help me find the strength to be contented here. It's amazing where the Lord will find and bring you strength to be contented. The Lord has brought contentment to mothers next to the deathbed of their children. I heard one story from a pastor. This child was sick, two years old, had passed away in front of his mother and the hospital. And the moment that went flatline, she turned to the pastor and said, can we sing the doxology? Where does that kind of strength come from? It's not from her. It's not from us. That's one that will look to Christ and sees even that and can see contentment in Christ. That's a powerful testimony, people. That's what Paul is able to do here in the midst of prison. No guarantee of release. Eventual martyrdom. And what Paul says is, I am content in Christ. And I find my strength here. Now, let's go over what that doesn't mean. This doesn't mean that for the sake of contentment, that you have to endure trouble that you don't have to. Paul in Acts chapter 22 was about to be stretched out to be unjustly whipped. And he used his Roman citizenship to not have to go through this unjust punishment. This is not saying, well, for the sake of contentment, I won't do anything to improve my life. I won't take a Tylenol to get rid of this headache because I need to be content in all circumstances. It's not what he's talking about here. Paul was grateful for the gift that he got from the Philippians here in verse 10 and rejoiced over that and used that. Doesn't mean he wasn't contented by using the resources that he has. We don't need to stay in things that will cause us pain. But... Those things that we look forward to, saying, okay, well, I can provide better for my family with this new job. Assuming there's no sin in changing those jobs, great, do that. But recognize that is not going to be your fulfilling moment in life. And that all these things that we do 
is to say, how can I create better glory for God? That's the reason why we do things. Can you glorify God better without that headache? Take the Tylenol. Can you glorify God better being married? Then be married. Can you glorify God better than being being single? Be single. Be content in where the Lord is calling you. And in whatever you do, do all things to the glory of God. And you will find contentment. And again, what you will find is a superpower in this world. The ability to be happy. The ability to find joy, even in hardship. It's a hard thing to do. We're programmed to want to be comfortable. And today, unlike any other day that human beings have ever lived, that reality seems closer than ever. But even in a world in which we don't have to grow our own food, we don't have to build our own houses, we don't have to do almost anything for ourselves, we still need Christ. Because those things, even our modern world in America, will not fulfill. We need to be in Christ. Here's one more quote from you for you, and this is from a counselor. His name is David Powelson. Put it this way. He says, the New Testament version of manna is grace. God will give you all the grace that you need today, but he's not going to give you all the grace you need for tomorrow. Because if you had manna for the next week, you would trust in your storehouse and forget about God. It's a powerful reminder we need to come to Christ every day looking for strength. It's exactly when we think we're strong, that's when we're the weakest. So we need God's blessing every day. This quote about having grace for today and grace for tomorrow, I think I've told this story before, but it bears repeating. There were two prisoners that were being held for their faith in Christ and were set to be burned at the stake the next day. One of the prisoners who was in there had a small candle, and he would test himself to see could he endure even a little bit of flame on his hand or on his feet, and wondering, because he would withdraw his hand every time it got close to the candle, he was afraid that his faith would falter that next day when threatened with the pyre fires of martyrdom. The prisoner next to him looked at him and said, what you're trying to do is live on God's grace for tomorrow today. God is going to meet you at the stake tomorrow and provide you the grace you need for that moment. And sure enough, he did. That's grace is sufficient. So when you look forward in anxiety for what's coming in the future, you don't have grace for that yet. But God will meet you there. Trust him. When you look to today, the disappointments... The frustrations that are today, he'll meet you there. So that we're able to be content, even though our bodies don't work the way that they used to. The price of things is a lot higher than they used to be. Things in general are just seemingly worse. Christ will meet you here. Just ask. He's promised to be with you. Of course, he's promised a beautiful future too. We can be content in it right now, 
And we can look with hope for the future, as I've prayed already, that he is going to provide all things for us. That's why in our statement, our confession of faith today talks about our only comfort in life and in death. It's Jesus Christ all the way through. So if you've not turned your life over to him, if you have not come to him in faith, asking for the forgiveness of your sins, then yes, you don't have anything to be content over. You have a big problem waiting for you at the end of your life and in your life currently. So if you've not come to him, come to him today. And what you will find is the forgiveness of sins, contentment for your life today, and a glorious hope for tomorrow. Such that you'll be able to say along with the psalmist that my joy is greater than theirs when their grain and wine abound. Does it matter what's happening over here? Does it matter how so-and-so's life is showing up on social media? I can be content here because Jesus is here and is providing me strength for today. Let's pray. Oh, Jesus, we do thank you for this wonderful promise that you've given to us, that we can be content despite our circumstances, and in fact, even because of them, because these circumstances are from you. Lord, all things are a gift and are bringing us closer to you, and we'll see one day how they all work together. Oh, help us to look forward to those things. Help us to be content in who you are today, that we will find strength for today and for tomorrow. Lord, we ask all these things in the precious name of Jesus. Amen.